Good morning. And let's begin with prayer. Gracious Father, we're so thankful for your love and the way you run your kingdom and that your kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this, of this earth, Lord. We ask that your Holy Spirit will enlighten our minds, help us understand more fully how uh, you uh, operate and that we can, uh, through trust and faith and, and the empowerment of your spirit, live in harmony with uh, your purposes and plans, fulfill your goals for us at this time in human history. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Before we get into the lesson, a couple announcements. I mentioned last week, and I'll mention this probably going forward for a while, but uh, Come and Reason Ministries has a vision now. We became a not-for-profit 501c3 back in 2010. So in September this year, it'll be our 11th year. And we have been basically in this facility almost every week since that time, and we've been very thankful to be able to meet here. Uh, yet, um, we, as we've grown, we've uh, seen the need to move toward maybe a permanent facility. We're restricted in what we can do because we don't have have this um, space to do recordings, do uh, programs. We're always looking for some other pers- people's space. We've tried to do several programs here in the community, contacted some facilities, but they had conflicts and schedule, and we couldn't get it figured out. So our goal is to, to move toward a permanent structure for our ministry where we can have an auditorium uh, sound studio, but we need the facility to where we can have our equipment there all the time. Um, don't worry, we're not going to hit you up with fundraising emails and fundraising letters. We're putting this out there so if people want to come alongside and, and join us in, in this process, they can. Keep us in prayer that as we move this direction, we'll really uh, go and end up where the Lord would have us. We are doing Lesson 6 in the quarterly, The Promise, God's Everlasting Covenant, and the title is Abraham's Seed. And the memory text is from First Peter 2, 9, and it reads... Uh, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a, a special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, everybody's heard that before, haven't they? Does it have meaning to you? Does it inform you of your personal identity? Do you recognize you're a royal? Understand, you're a royal Do you recognize yourself as a prince or a princess? I bet most of most of us have not. But that's what the scripture says, a royal priesthood. We are children of the king. Adopted into his family. Do you feel and identify yourself as a royal? A royal of the celestial government. In heaven. Is that how you experience it? When you walk around the city, are you walking around with the knowledge that you're a royal? You're not only a royal, a prince and a princess, and that's who you are if you're in Christ. It's true, you can lay down your royal identity and go back into the world. But if you're in Christ, you're a royal. But you're not just a royal, you're a royal priest. That includes... Males and females. If you're a in Christ, ladies, you are a priest. A royal princess priest. Men, a prince priest. Unless the scripture is not true. Do you experience these facts as part of your own identity? I'm going to encourage you to take some time this week and reflect on those truths. Allow yourself to contemplate the meaning of what it means for you to be a royal 
in the celestial government and a priest of God. Think of it in PACS. If you make that an active part of how you experience yourself, does it impact how you live? Now, if you were, if you were a royal of the British monarchy and you were walking around in public, would you be cognizant of how you carry yourself? Understanding the, the burden of what you represent? Being careful? Do we consider that when we take the name Christ? What's the function of a priest? You're not only a royal, you're a priest. What's the function of a priest? To minister. Minister what? What are we as royal priests, prince priests, princess priests, what are we to be ministering? Well, the text tells you. It tells you that we are to minister marvelous light. Marvelous light. What's the marvelous light? Do you have marvelous light to minister as a prince and princess? Well, what is that marvelous light? Christ in us, the hope of glory. How, how is that marvelous light communicated? How is it different than the darkness of the world? Would it be the marvelous light, not only Christ in us, but with Christ in us, we bear the testimony of Jesus? And what testimony did Jesus give? Ah, if you've seen me, you've seen, as the Father sent me, so send I. So are we to give testimony about the Father? That if you don't love him, he'll kill you and burn you in hell. If you don't love him, he will punish you. That he has rules, and if you disobey, he's got an angel keeping track and records, and, and there'll be a judi- is, is this Is this the marvelous light, or is this the big lie? This is the big lie. The lie that has intoxicated the whole world, that God's law runs like human governments. We have marvelous light. God is not like that. God is love. His laws are love. His, his protocols, how he constructed reality. As you meditate on these things, expand your mind to consider the possibilities. And then what marvelous light do you have to share? Sunday's lesson pulls out another descriptor of God's people. Besides royalty, besides priesthood, a holy people. You're not only a royal and a priest, you're holy. Now what does that mean, holy What is holiness? Set apart? That's a classic definition, and it's not wrong. Set apart from what? The world? Sin? So if we're set apart from sin, would that be the same thing as being restored to righteousness? If we're set apart from sin, would that be the same thing as being healed and reconciled to God? Would it be at one with him again? If we're set apart from sin... When Moses went to the burning bush, he was instructed to take his shoes off because the ground on which he was standing was... What does that mean? Dirt? Holy dirt? What does that mean? The Bible repeatedly says that the Sabbath is holy. Repeatedly. Multiple times. Sabbath is holy. A holy day? 
it's not an object. It's not matter. It's not physical. It's time. How is the time of the Sabbath holy, and how is that different from the other time on the other six days of the week? How is time holy? The Bible says it is. How? What does that mean? When Israel was at Sinai, the boundary was put around the mountain because the mountain was holy, according to Scripture. How was Sinai different than all the other mountains around it? God's presence. I like where you're going with that. When they built the sanctuary, it had a holy place and a most holy place. How were those places, those physical places, different than the places out in the court or in the city? Was the material that they built it out of from another planet? It wasn't actually the same gold and silver and cedar trees from Earth. It was from some other planet. Planet. Is that why it was holy? What, what made it holy? The high priest wore a turban with a gold plate on the forehead of the turban with this inscription, Holy to the Lord. The golden altar and the utensils, all the utensils used in the sanctuary service, were holy. Anything that the sacrificial blood of the sacrificial animal touched became holy. So what is holiness? What does it mean to be holy? You, you've, you've heard the holy, holy, holy your whole life, right? That's whole life with a W. How can objects and time be holy? Is it merely an arbitrary declaration by a rulemaking sovereign deity? There, I declare that's holy and that's not. Is that the difference? A declaration. Is there something based in reality that sets them apart? What was the difference about the burning bush and the ground around it and every other bush and ground on the mountain? What was the difference? Well, God's presence... And God's presence caused the bush to burn but not get consumed. So the bush now takes on a function. And the ground around it, it takes on a function it didn't have before. And what was the function this bush now had? It was set apart from all other bushes. God's presence was there. That's true. And with God's presence, the bush now has a function. Reveal something about the fire. A revelation of truth. It's being useful. It's setting apart from the normal things of the world. What would a bush normally do if you put a match to it? This bush is on fire, but it doesn't burn. Something is being revealed, a revelation of truth. A revelation of truth. Now, where does all truth originate? All truth, the word was made flesh. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truth, all truth leads where? If you follow truth to its source, where will you end up? Back in harmony with God. So, so, and that's holiness. So, a revelation of truth. So, the, so it's set apart because it's useful and 
um, functioning as a vehicle to reveal truth about God. What about, and that's the same thing for the mountain, by the way. The Sabbath was created as a day in which, yeah, and I was going to ask, with Sabbath, were the hours different from any other day? day? Sinai different from any other? Okay. All the elements in the sanctuary different from any other utensils? And what makes them different is their use and function. Sabbath is created as a day, created as a day, which reveals God's methods and character. Day one through six reveal God is creator and powerful. Creator and powerful. But day seven reveals the character of the one who wields power. He does not coerce. He does not intimidate. He does not force. He actually creates time for liberty and free thinking. He rested from using power. He ceased the use of power. He stepped back from using power and created a time for intelligences to reflect and think about what he just revealed. The Sabbath was created as a time invested with, you've seen the truth all week long, of a world created to operate on the design protocols of love. Everything on the planet as God designed it was a revelation of love and giving and other-centeredness in the ecosystems and how it all worked. And then he left beings free. No intimidation, no coercion. So the Sabbath stands apart from the other days because it is the day upon which God rested, revealing his method for winning. Truth, love, freedom. The sanctuary and all its elements are set apart for the same reason as the bush. They became objects that had function to teach eternal truths about God. And it's planned to heal and save. So what is holiness? Being set apart from the profane, from the worldly, from the selfish, from the fearful, and being united with God's kingdom of love, truth, liberty, to fulfill the purposes and live in harmony with God and his methods. That's what holiness is. Thus his people are called a holy people, a holy nation, set apart from operating on the systems and methods of the world, dominated by fear, self-centeredness. They're reborn with a heart that loves God and loves others and operate on trust and faith and love. Here's one historic quote. It's out of a book called Second Testimonies, page 168. See if you would agree or disagree. Those whom God accepts and sanctifies to him are called to be diligent and faithful in his service, being set apart and devoted to him. It is not a form of godliness nor a name upon the church records that constitutes a living stone in the spiritual building. I love that metaphor. Living stone, spiritual building. Consider the implications of a sanctuary in heaven. When you ever get conversations about people, do you believe there's a sanctuary in heaven? I sure do. And I just say, I sure do. If you use inspiration, the Bible, go to the Bible or any other inspired source that you value and inquire, if I use those sources, what is that heavenly sanctuary built out of? What's it constructed from? Living stones built into a house for the Lord. Living stones. The sanctuary in heaven is not made out of brick, mortar, gold, wood. It's made out of living stones. And everybody who, well, you don't, well, I guess you don't believe there's a sanctuary in heaven then. 
because they're concrete operators and they think only of a building made out of inanimate matter. That's not God's reality. God is a living God and he lives in living temples. Anyway, I love that. Living stone in a spiritual building. It is being renewed in the knowledge and true holiness being crucified to the world and made alive in Christ that unites the soul to God. The followers of Christ have one leading object in view, one great work, the salvation of their fellow humans, men. Every other interest should be inferior to this. It should engage the most earnest effort and the deepest interest. That's a holy people. Reconciled to God and has their primary interest of bringing other people out of the misery of fear, emptiness, guilt, shame, survival drives, loneliness, violence, all the garbage you see just in a five-second headlines. Five seconds in the headlines is all you need to see the corruption of the systems of the world. And the holy people don't identify with those systems. And the holy people call others to the reality of God's design and kingdom where they can have restoration and healing. It's being set apart from the profane. That's what holiness is, from the sinful world. And I want to suggest that holiness is perfect harmony with God, ultimately in every domain of our existence as God finishes his work in us. Anything that violates God's design laws for life is unholy and damages and destroys. Any any concern about me saying that? God, through his agencies, is working to restore us to holiness, which means restore us to harmony with his laws, right? His law in our hearts and minds. So here's another quote. comes from Christian Experience and Teachings, page 207. Same author. It's before. At this time, the church is to put on her beautiful garments, Christ our righteousness. I'm going to pause right there. What is being described? Now, it's very interesting that in the history of the Adventist church, in 1888, there was a general conference meeting in which um, some some reformers, continuing the, the path of the great reformers of Luther and others, uh, continued to advance the Reformation by advancing the righteousness by faith message. A.T. Jones, Wagner, E.G. White uh, were advancing this message of righteousness by faith, which was a message of 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's actually righteousness in the believer. We get new hearts, right spirits. Fear and selfishness are removed or pushed aside, and love is written in. Not our love. We don't generate it. Romans 5, he pours his love into our hearts. We have new motives, new desires, and Revelation describes these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. This is the, we, we actually become righteous in character. However, church leadership did not like this message. They rejected it, and they sent E.G. White to Australia. And if you look on a map, get a globe out, and you see where the headquarters of the Adventist Church was at the time, North America. If you want to send somebody as far away from headquarters as you can get them, 
you send them to Australia. It's exactly the opposite side of the globe. You can't get farther on planet Earth. And this is where they shipped her so they could continue to advance the penal, legal, imperial law model, which says that, and they took the language of righteous by faith, and they perverted it. It is not, you have faith, you open your heart, the old person literally dies, your identity stops living for self, your identity stops living by fear, stops living to get ahead at the advantage of others. Your identity is reborn with love for God and love for others, And you begin to live, to live out those principles as the Holy Spirit leads in your life. You have a new heart, new motive, new desires. You are righteous. That was rejected. And instead, what was taught, they took the righteous by faith message, and they said, righteous by faith means that when you accept Jesus as your Savior, you accept his legal payment, all your sins were put on him. Uh, The Father punished him in your place. Uh, When you accept him, his blood payment pays the debt for your sin. And in heaven, you get an adjustment in your registry up there, your your accounting system, and and next to your name is is written righteous. And you are declared to be righteous in the legal courts of heaven, even though you are unrighteous on earth. And when the Father looks at you now in the judgment, he will not see you. What he will see is he will see the perfect righteousness of his son because you're covered by the robe of his righteousness and he can't see through it. It's like a it's like a force shield. The Father's infinite powers can't penetrate because he has an infinite son standing there holding his discerning powers at bay. He cannot see your wickedness. He only sees the righteous. And so the father says, oh, another righteous one. He looks just like my son. I'll accept him even though he's wicked. This is the penal legal garbage that is foisted on the world. And this is why there's no power in Christianity. This is why in Christian homes, you have the same problems at the same rate as unchristian homes, same spouse abuse, same child abuse, same addictions, same pornography use, because there's no power in a false gospel that teaches legal adjustment without transformation of heart. It's a big corruption. Yes. I like how Proverbs five eighteen says it: the path of righteousness is like the first gleam of dawn, shining even brighter till the full light of day. The path of the wicked is like deep darkness. Well, I've, I've been where the deep darkness was, and I see the righteousness inside growing. That's right. You know, as we come closer to it. And we grow closer and closer. And so, uh, the history of the church, the uh, 1888, the righteous by faith message was brought. They took the language and they perverted it into a penal legal system, and then they shipped one of the prime leaders of that message down to Australia, where she wrote, so if you have any doubts about this idea, Christ our righteousness, beautiful garments, that's a metaphor covered in the robe of righteousness. It's taught in the penal view. It's a covering over wickedness. You can't be righteous. You're still unrighteous, but you're covered over legally, in the, and you're declared to be righteous even though you're not. I call that the candy-coated rotten apple theory. Take a rotten apple, coat it in candy, and it looks really good, but it's still rotten to the core. That's the false gospel that most Christians accept. This author, after she was sent down to Australia, wrote the following regarding 
this covering of the robe. It's in Christ Object Lessons, page 311. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. Anybody echoing? It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Paul's statement. Okay. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. Okay? That's the reality. That's the gospel. That's the message for this time. And so many people, I will tell you, I present this to theologians and thought leaders, and they get angry. They won't accept it. Because they have a false law model. And and understand, understand why they think what they think. If you accept the lie that God's law works like human law, a system of rules that we just make up that require judicial oversight, that require external punishment and enforcement, if that's your premise, then it is necessary to have God as a punishing agency, and it's necessary to have all this legal adjustment accounting stuff going on. Their core problem is they don't understand the truth of God's law. God is creator. His laws are the law of life. And when you understand those truths, then you understand that deviations from them are destructive to the sinner. And without God's agencies working to write his law in our hearts and minds, restore us, just what this says, then we die. We're dead in trespass and sin. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death, as the scripture said. Not God. God is not the source of death. Boy, I'm getting off. Wow, I've got to hurry up now. Continue on with this quote. There are clear, decided distinctions to be restored and exemplified Uh, to the world in holding aloft the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The beauty of holiness is to appear in its native luster in contrast to the deformity and darkness of the disloyal, those who have revolted against the law of God. Thus, we acknowledge God, we acknowledge God and recognize his law, the foundation of his government in heaven and throughout his earthly domain. Pause. Do you hear what that said? Uh, the, the, the holiness, the beauty of holiness is to appear in its native luster as we acknowledge the law of God and, uh, and, and, uh, and government and reveal it in the earthly domains. And it's contrasting to the deformity and darkness of the world. What is the deformity and darkness of the world? What are all the world system operate upon? Look in the world. Look what's happening in America, folks. Why do you think the Lord is allowing it to happen? So people can wake up and realize there is no justice in an imposed law system. Ever. Because the rules can be changed with, by whomever is in power. There's no justice ever in an imposed law system. If you can't see that today, then you're blind. There's only justice... In a design law, a universe created by a God of love who sustains his laws impartially, constantly. They never vary. So this is the law. Now, it's, and he wants to restore us to the beauty of holiness. The beauty of holiness. Is restoration to God's design living like Jesus beautiful? Yes, it absolutely is. It, it is. And what does this mean, the native luster? What does native mean? Original luster. Oh, so where would we see the native luster of holiness? In Eden. In Eden before sin. Native luster of holiness. Uh, 
Because God's law, understand, is a living law. Written into the living, sentient beings, Adam and Eve, to love each other as God loves us. The proto- it is the protocols of life, and holiness is having God's law written again in our hearts. You cannot understand love in stone. Rocks cannot love. Information written down on two tablets of stone that you read is not love. Those two tablets cannot love you. Why do you think God wrote those two tablets? Because where was his law not written? On their hearts. On their hearts. It wasn't written there anymore. His authority should be kept distinct and plain before the world, and no laws are to be acknowledged that come in collision with the laws of Jehovah. Did you hear that? No laws are to be acknowledged that come in collision with the laws of Jehovah. Does this mean just a specific commandment about a day of worship? Is that what all, it's only referring to that? Or is it referring to the entire concept of law? That we must stop acknowledging and believing that God's law operates like human law, a system of rules that requires legal accounting, registry, recording in books, a a heavenly judicial process, examining records, applying payments, meeting out punishments, that we have to stop this false law construct completely. We must return to worshiping our creator and presenting the three angels' message that we've been called to present. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. Which is a call back to worship the creator and his laws, his design laws. So what is holiness? Restoration of the law of love into the hearts and minds of individuals so that we live godly. We are separated from the systems of the world and how we operate. And so Matthew, Jesus speaking, you've heard it said... Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and unrighteous. Notice, after just calling us to love like God loves, he gives an example of God's laws. The sunshine does not discriminate against people. It shines equally on all. The rain does not discriminate on people. It shines, it rains equally on all. He gives two examples from nature that operate on design laws as an example of how love functions. And then he goes on to say, be perfect, therefore, as your father in heaven is perfect. Be perfect. Does that word scare you? If you have the human law model, it's frightening. And this is why they have the false legal thing that I just said, because you can never be perfect. You're always unrighteous. You can always make mistakes. You always do this. You always do that. So we have to have somebody perfect uh, uh, declared to be our representative. And so when the father looks at him, he'll look at just nothing but perfection. I actually heard on Christian radio this week a 
renowned worldwide personality speaker from um, an evangelical Christian organization speaking on this very question. And he says that because of Jesus' death on the cross, you get his history. So when the judgment happens, the Father sees in your name the life and history of Jesus. That's very interesting. Did you know you were born in Bethlehem of a virgin? That's very interesting. Did you know that uh, uh, that you're actually male? Uh, maybe there is a transgender truth here I didn't know about. <laughs> I mean, this is silly. You don't get Jesus' history. You get what I read earlier. You get his character. You get a new heart that he developed perfectly. You get his mind. You get the mind of Christ is what the Bible says you get. With your history. Your history renewed with the mind of Christ. Your life lived new with, it's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. Which is even more compelling because we've been transformed from a corrupt character to a Christ-like character. So much more powerful. Yeah. So much more powerful. Be perfect, therefore. So perfection in Bible practice is maturity of character. It's not about task performance. It's about having the right heart, motives, and attitudes, ultimately loving God and loving others so that these are they who do not love their life so much as shrink of death. There's perfect people in the scriptures. You can see them. Not sinless people, perfect people. Job was perfect and righteous in all his ways. He wasn't sinless, but he was perfect because he never uh, lost his trust in God. That was it. He didn't turn to selfishness. He didn't seek to advance himself by hurting others. He didn't run. He hurt. He cried. He had questions he didn't understand, but he trusted. He was perfect. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the plain of Dura. They were perfect. They did not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They stood for what's right. Their character was right. That didn't mean they were sinless. They still needed Jesus as their Savior. Bible perfection. Stephen was perfect. There's many perfect people in Scripture. And that's what God is calling us for, to transform our hearts with so much love for him and others that we would give our lives. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. That is not something you can conjure up by willpower. It is something that you experience as a living temple that is indwelt by the presence of God. And that doesn't happen overnight. It is not open overnight. It's about dying. It's about living. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The same author went on to write in uh, the Bible commentary, 6 Bible commentary 1117, the following. Holiness is the gift of God through Christ. What kind of gift is this? It is a gift of a legal adjustment in your registry or, you know, in a book in some far off corner in a building in, in some place in the universe? That's the gift? Or is it something that actually is gifted into your heart and mind that transforms you? Continuing with the same quote, those who receive the Savior become sons of God. They are his spiritual children, born again, renewed in righteousness and true holiness. Their minds are changed. What is described here as holiness? Being reborn, renewed, actual, literal, just like 2 Corinthians 5.21 teaches. And then continue on the quote. With clearer vision, they behold eternal realities. They are adopted into God's family and they become conformed to his likeness, changed by his spirit from glory to glory. Again, regeneration, transformation. That's what it means to be holy. Accepting Christ as personal savior and following his example in self-denial, this is the secret of holiness. So what is holiness? 
having God's living law written in your heart through the indwelling spirit, being transformed. Boy, my goodness, the time has just gone by so fast. Um, first paragraph in Sunday's lesson says, there's no question about it, the Lord specifically had chosen the Hebrew people to be his special representation upon the earth, representatives upon the earth. The word translated as special in the above verse is sugula, meaning valued property or peculiar treasure. The crucial point to remember, too, is that this choice was totally the act of God, an expression of his grace. There was nothing found in the people themselves that made them deserve this grace. They couldn't, there couldn't be because grace is something that comes undeserved. And so I think this is very poorly worded. I don't think it's wrong. I just think it's poorly worded that leads to confusion and misconception. I want to want to just clear up any potential confusion by asking a few questions or just making a few statements. God, God's actions are always 100% God's actions. What God chooses is always 100% God's choice. In other words, they're saying here that this this choosing of Abraham to be his people was 100 percent to God, and, the, and there was no there was no role, there was nothing in the people, there was nothing about them. It was God. It was God's sovereign will. He just chose it and made it happen. God did choose, and it was God's action. But God chose Abraham and his descendants. Did that mean Abraham didn't have a choice to make? Isaac didn't have a choice to make. Jacob didn't have a choice to make. Their descendants didn't have choices through all the generations to make, in response to God's choice to choose them. And we actually see that, in fact, they did because millions rejected the choice and became apostate and were lost, and some of the tribes just disappeared. But God chose Abraham. Why? Because God foreknew a remnant of Abraham's descendant would remain faithful and be useful and respond to him to be the avenue for the Messiah and keep the scriptures for the rest of us. He chose them because he saw and foreknew that there would be a faithful few. The word deserve, by, uh, I believe that they use this, they didn't deserve it. They mean it um, in the sense of a reward or some good work, as in compensation, as in pay, as in something earned, as something they had a right to. Uh, and in that sense, they're correct. They, 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 they were not chosen by God because of some good thing that they earned. It's not pay. It's not compensation. But it doesn't mean that God's choice to call Abraham's family was devoid of something in them. It was not devoid of something in them. It wasn't. It was cho- God, he, God chose Abraham and his descendants because they were still healable. They weren't beyond reach. They weren't beyond response. And that's why they were chosen. Not because they earned it, but because they were still viable in the plan of salvation. Does that make sense? Uh, Abraham made promise, uh, God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then he told Jacob that the promises would be filled in Egypt. In Egypt, they would become a great nation. He told Jacob this in Genesis 46.3. What's the significance? This is quite profound for people who don't believe God has foreknowledge. This is a very powerful evidence of God's foreknowledge. And those, uh, but there are some that believe God can't know the future choices of people. He can only know the possible choices of people. But God predicts they'll become a great nation in Egypt. Understand, for this to happen, there were lots and lots of choices of people that had to be made. Joseph's brother had to choose, brothers had to choose to sell him into slavery. The traveling slavers had to choose to go to Egypt and then to sell Egypt and not just kill him on the way. Sell Joseph in Egypt and not kill him on the way. Potiphar had to choose to buy Joseph. And then he had to choose not to kill him when his wife made the false allegations. And then he had to choose to put him in the prison 
prison rather than just selling to some some other slave owner. Uh, and then Pharaoh had to decide to imprison the baker and the and the uh, cupbearer. And then and then after all these choices, God intervenes with dreams for the baker, cupbearer, and Pharaoh, and gives uh, Joseph the capacity to interpret them. And then Pharaoh still has to choose to recognize the truth of those things and choose to honor Joseph and choose to give him a position of power and choose then to give land and offer land to, to J- uh, Joseph's family. And Jacob had to choose to have his family come down into, into Egypt and live. Understand God made this prophecy because he foreknew choices. And I am, I am you know, tired of, of the, the so-called arguments because they're without evidence and they're without reason. And they make them because they don't understand that a God can foreknow, our God can foreknow your choices and you are still completely free to make them. They are afraid that if he foreknows, you're not free. It's predestined. You're predetermined. It's not so. He lives in all places in time. All places in time. He's not restrained in a linear existence like us. And as you move through time, every one of your choices is freely yours. But because he lives in all points in time, he's aware of them when you make them. He only becomes aware of your future choices when in the future you make them. It's just that he's already there when you make them. And then why did God actively work to bring this about? Because he's fulfilling the covenant that he gave to Adam. The covenant to bring the Messiah. And this is what you see being played out. It's quite profound if you look at it. The plan of salvation. Satan is working to stop God's plan. God is working to keep it. We've already talked about the flood. We're going to pick up with Abraham's family. But you can see where where Abraham is under assault and attack to try and stop the plan from being realized. And God is intervening constantly to counter. There's move and counter move and move and counter move. And once God chooses Abraham and says it's from your descendants the seed will come, the Messiah that will crush the serpent's head. Satan and then doesn't have to worry about the rest of planet Earth. He has to crush this branch of the family. And this is why the Bible focuses our attention there, because the Bible's focus is about the plan of salvation and the coming Messiah. It's, not, it's why we don't read about the Chinese, the Japanese. Not because God doesn't love them. The plan of salvation is not coming through that branch. And so as we read, we can see Satan is working for, uh, to, to try and divert or, or, or obstruct the plan. First, and you can see, Sarah t- tempts Abraham to take Hagar and fulfill the promise through that. This is a temptation to divert the plan. Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities and their perversity are so corrupt, God uh, has to remove them. He informs Abraham that he's going to do it. And without those cities on the plain, the children of Israel are still so corrupted by the remaining that by the time Messiah comes, there's only two tribes left. Ten tribes have been completely infested and infected and co-opted and destroyed because they were corrupted by the paganism and the fertility cults around them without Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities. Uh, My view is that God recognizes this as the minimum excision of a necrotic lesion of uh, perversity that I have to excise in order for the avenue of the Messiah to be realized in Christ to come. Jacob's son Simeon and Levi's dishonest dealing with the Shechemites, uh, which incited hostility in the nations around to uh, pursue and kill the family of Abraham, or Jacob's family. Joseph's brother's jealousy. Where do you think that originated? It certainly wasn't the Holy Spirit. The famine. Where do you think that famine came from? You don't think Satan has the power over nature to a certain degree? 
You can see that in the book of Job. Check out the first chapter of the book of Job and some of the things are the, that, Job, that uh, Satan brings upon Job. He has certain uh, powers on, on nature. This famine was designed to, I think, starve and kill out Abraham's family. God foreknew and foresaw and made provision with Joseph, who trusted him and was able to be useful by staying faithful, to be in a position to have a, uh, a sanctuary for them to come to and be... And then their captivity in Egypt. Who inspired Pharaoh with jealousy to turn on the Hebrews and to enslave them? And what was the goal of the enslavement? Was it not to degrade them and to destroy any responsiveness to the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the people, to shut down the avenue for Messiah? Why did God allow the captivity, do you ever wonder? Why did he allow it? He sent Moses 400 years in. Why didn't he send somebody like Moses 20 years in? Why didn't he send a deliverer sooner? He could have sent a deliverer when they're only... In fact, Pharaoh declares slavery yesterday, and the deliverer comes today. They haven't even been enslaved yet, just the declaration of slavery. Why, couldn't, couldn't God have sent a Moses to bring the plagues and shut it all down in the beginning? But couldn't he have done it then? He certainly heard the cries, but this cry has been going up for quite some time. I'm, 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 I am certain that it wasn't just that generation that was crying under the oppression of slavery. Any of those slave people were crying. That's a normal human response to abuse, to cry out for deliverance. So why didn't he do it early? Because he's working to bring Messiah. He's working to bring Messiah. And so where did they grow large and become a great people? Where? In Egypt, under the protection of the Egyptian army. No, that they were now property of Egypt. Other nations, the Hittites and so forth, are not going to come in and attack and kill them. They'll have to go up against the Egyptians. So they grew strong under the protection of the Egyptians, where all the other nations that might have assaulted or attacked them could not get at them. And then they grew to the point that they were large enough as a people, they would not be destroyed by the enemy nations when they went out as a people. This is a common Jewish understanding of why. The, uh, why the, uh, the slavery was permitted, so that they could grow strong enough, be large enough as a group, that when they went out, the enemies out there could not overwhelm and destroy them. So God permitted it for the purpose of growing them strong to be the avenue for the Messiah. And they were to go out, though, and be a righteous nation, a holy nation. Let's see where we're going to go now, because I have so many things to talk about. We're going to skip Monday. We'll go to Tuesday. It says, uh, first paragraph, let's look at the first paragraph in Tuesday's lesson. The text is, it refers to the text above. Yet they obeyed not, nor inclined the ear, but walked every one in the imagination of their evil hearts. Therefore, I will bring upon them all the words of the covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not do. That's Jeremiah eleven eight. And the text the lesson says, look at the above text. The Lord says that he will bring upon them all the words of the covenant. Yet he is talking about something bad. In italics and exclamation point. Huh. Something bad? Does the Lord bring bad things? Is God the source of bad? The lesson suggests it. But let me ask you, folks. Is it bad for a parent to discipline an unruly child? Is that bad? Is it bad for a dentist to pull a rotten tooth? Is it bad for a surgeon to excise a cancer? Does our understanding of what's transpiring here make a difference in what God's doing? 
What happens to the character of people when they rebel against God, worship false idols, go into all types of fertility, cult worship? Uh, what happens to their characters? What happens to their consciences? What happens to them when they rebel and do those things? So when God brings the painful consequences, allowing captivity and so forth, is he doing something bad for them? Or is he like a dentist pulling a tooth, a surgeon excising a cancer, a parent disciplining? What happens, though, with a person with leprosy and they touch a hot stove or cut themselves with a knife? See, leprosy does not cause direct damage to the tissues. Leprosy just prevent, destroys the, the pain fibers in your, in your body so that when you do burn yourself, you don't feel it. And so you keep your hand on the hot stove and you smell burning flesh and then you pull it off. Much more damage. That's why leprosy is a metaphor for sin. Persistence in sin sears the conscience, hardens the heart. You, stop, you lose your sensitivity and you have much more degradation and damage. So God brings increasing amounts of painful consequences to the people acting outside his law as evidence of his love for them designed to turn them around. This is not bad for them. It's the only hope they have. If he doesn't do this, they'll be eternally lost. But this requires a certain wisdom, and that's the wisdom of design law. If you see this through imposed law, well, they broke the rules. God's punishment, that's bad. That's bad bad stuff. Pain and suffering comes from sin. It doesn't come from God. And then once there is brokenness, there are no pain-free options. Once there's brokenness, even the healing of the most gentle surgeon will be painful. And God cannot heal us without us suffering. That's why it's called crucifying the flesh. Dying to self. It is not feel good to go through the process, but it is good to go through the process. The lesson says, for the most part, the history of the nation of national Israel was a repeated pattern of apostasy followed by divine judgments. Boy, I'm going to have to rush really fast to get through this part. I want, I want you to understand what judgments are. Judgments. When you hear the word judgments, what comes to mind? Divine judgments because of apostasy. Well, what law lens? Always go back. What law lens? Human law lens, they broke the rules. Judgment requires infliction of punishment. Design law lens, though, you'll get a more accurate understanding most of the time if you simply substitute the word diagnosis, assessment. When a doctor sees a patient and evaluates them, and diagnoses them, he's making a judgment of what's going on. That's what's happening. Is it not? And then when he intervenes with a treatment, that's a judgment. His judgment call of what will best result in healing. So God's judgments can be seen as judicial punitive infliction, or they can be seen as love, mercy, and saving. So, But it gets confusing because there are four judgments in Scripture, at least four. And I'm going to run through them really fast in our last five minutes. The first judgment, Romans 3, verse 4, it says, God, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and you may overcome when you are judged. The first judgment, Satan lied about God. We believe those lies. Jesus has come to reveal the truth, and he gives you the opportunity to make a judgment. Is God like Satan says, or is God like Jesus says? It's your choice. Which God are you going to believe in and worship? Thus, this is Mount Carmel. If God is like Baal, worship him. If God is like Yahweh, worship him. The people have to make a judgment. 
We are the Elijah message. We are standing in the place in time that the Elijah people are to stand up and give that same message again, and it's the three angels' message. Fear God, be in awe of God, and glorify him. Let his light shine through you. Be, give the testimony of Jesus about the Father. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. For the hour of his judgment has come. The hour in history for people to say, wait a minute, God is not this imperial dictator who runs his universe like Rome, like the church has taught for over a thousand years. God is like Jesus revealed. People need to hear the message so they can make the right judgment about God and come out of this false Babylonian system. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. Creator, design, law, worship. That's the first judgment. Second judgment. Malachi 3, 1 through 5. Then the Lord, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant who you desire will come, says the Lord. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he'll be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Now notice, he purifies the Levites. This is the royal priesthood, folks, purifying you and me. And he says, if you skip down, continuing on one verse later, so I will come near to you for judgment. He comes to you to assess you. Search me and see the wicked way in me, O God. Create in me a clean heart, O God. He comes to you to examine your heart to his spirit temple, to identify anything that's wrong, any perversity, any defects, any alienation from his methods, and so he can cleanse his temple, so that he can take away the sin, so he can write in his perfection. He comes and makes a judgment of what the problem is and what you need to fix it. That's the second judgment. This is also the judgment that we just read about in the Old Testament when he looks at a people and he judges where they're going away and they're rebelling and he makes a therapeutic intervention to turn them back like I'm going to have to let them go into Babylon. I wish they would stay loyal, but this is the best thing for them given what they're choosing. This is the second judgment. Diagnostic judgment, therapeutic judgment. Third judgment. Revelation 20, 4 through 6. I saw thrones on which receded those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony for Jesus, and because of the word, they had not worshipped the beast in his image and not received the mark. They had come to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6.3, Do you not know that you will judge angels? So in the future, there's a judgment that we sit and we evaluate all that's happened and we see and we make a judgment as to why these angels are lost, why these people are lost, why uh, God was... Unable to save them, not because God was inefficient in his capacities and abilities, but you will judge that, in fact, God did everything for them, and they're only lost because they persistently refused everything he offered. That's, I promise that's what your judgment will be. And in the fourth judgment, Revelation twenty eleven and 12, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done recorded in the books. And what is recorded in the books? If you have a penal legal false law model, you will say deeds, bad stuff's done in the books. But if you actually says, it says the book of life, and repeatedly if you look in Scripture, they'll tell you that something specific is recorded in the book of life. Names, names are recorded in the book of life and names in the Bible are representative of character. And so what's recorded in the book of life is your unique character, individuality. Either you've been reborn 
It's no longer you that live. Christ lives in you. And you have the actual character of Christ with your unique identity retained, or you've rejected Christ and you have the character of Satan, selfishness, and, and so forth. And you are judged by the actual condition of your character. And these are the metaphors you'll see in Scripture of judgment. Uh, the, the metaphor of the fisher and the net. What determines which fish are kept and which fish are, are thrown? Was there a judicial process? You have a prosecutor and, argue, uh, and, and a defender, and you argue for and against the fish, and some judge decides which one's to keep? Or is it actually the quality of the fish? Uh, the sheep and the goats. They're separated at the end, the sheep and the goats. What determines which group they go in? Is there a judgment? Well, this person is a, is, you know, is a sheep, but they identify as a goat. <laughs> Uh, I mean, is this, is this, or this person's a goat, but they identify as a sheep. Uh, is this what happens? Or is it actually sheep or sheep and goats or goats? It's reality. It is not a judicial arbitrary process. It is, re- you are either reborn and have a heart like Christ, or you solidified in fear and selfishness and are alienated against him. This is the final judgment. God simply, he who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He was wicked. Let him be wicked. So it is a diagnosis of reality, the final judgment. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, for your goodness, for all the liberties you've given us, for how you run your universe. We are so amazed by your beauty. We ask that your spirit will continue to grow us, develop us. Let us become ever-increasing bright lights in this dark world to prepare a world for your return and that you may return soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.